Medical quality seems like an elusive butterfly. Why is it always on the horizon, that point that gets further away the closer you get to it? What are the black swans that keep us from obtaining our goals? You're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. Donald Goldman. Dr. Goldman is Senior Vice President of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. He is a professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and professor of immunology and infectious diseases at Harvard School of Public Health. Hi, Dr. Goldman. Thanks for taking the time to be with us at the Clinician's Roundtable. My pleasure. The black swan I refer to is the title of a book by Dr. Nassim Nicholas Talib, who is currently Dean's Professor in the Sciences of Uncertainty at the University of Massachusetts. It's almost up in your neck of the woods. He defines a black swan as a highly improbable event with three principal characteristics. It is unpredictable, it carries a massive impact, and after the fact, we concoct an explanation that makes it appear less random and more predictable. Examples he gives are Google and 9-11. Now, we know about how to improve quality, and yet we still have 15 million patients who experience harm every year in our medical system. What I'd like to discuss with you is perhaps, what are the factors we don't know? Why do we have so much trouble accomplishing our goal to make this a safer system? Well, you know, the first thing to try and understand is what is the uh, cause of all these harms. As an epidemiologist, I'm very interested in trying to understand where the uh, payback would be greatest on the efforts we might make. So that's a good place to start and say, well, why do people die in hospitals? Well, one reason they die is that they deteriorate unexpectedly and we don't catch them in time to uh, really bail them out. They end up in an ICU or worse uh, when we could have caught it earlier. Uh, another uh, major issue relates to some of the principal diagnoses that people have when they come into the hospital, uh, such as acute myocardial infarction or congestive heart failure. Uh, and if we fail to provide the evidence-based care in a reliable fashion so that every patient gets all the care they need for those conditions, they won't do as well as they otherwise might, and they may go on and uh, suffer substantial morbidity or even uh, die. Uh, then there are harms that occur as a result of what we do to them in the hospital and, and understanding what they are is important. So we know that a lot of people are injured in the hospital because they have adverse drug events. That's the most common cause of adverse events in hospitals. And it's a multifactorial process which can be addressed in ways we may want to get into later to mitigate those harms. For one example, there are certain so-called high-alert medications like insulin, potassium chloride, narcotics and sedatives, anticoagulants, where we know that if we don't administer them absolutely fastidiously and correctly, that patients are going to get in trouble. They may bleed because of the anticoagulants. They they may uh, have cardiac arrest because they get potassium too quickly and so forth. Well, what kind of safeguards can we put in place to prevent that from happening? Some of them are extremely obvious. So if you have uh, multiple dilutions of concentrated solutions of KCL, of potassium chloride on the ward, there's a possibility that somebody will pick up the wrong vial and infuse it undiluted or inappropriately into a patient and kill them. And we have, through the Institute for Safe Medical Practice, countless examples of that. So the Joint Commission simply said, take these solutions off the ward. And pretty much across the country, that's been done now. So we see far fewer dire consequences of the inappropriate administration of KCL. A 56-year-old on 2.5 milligrams of baclofen, PRN, 
On the admitting history, the medical student noted baclofen 25 milligrams TID. The resident and the nurse cut and pasted the medical student's drug history into their note. Obviously, it must have been an electronic medical record. Resident countersigns order without checking. Shortcut. Nurse unaware of incorrect order. Respiratory status precipitously declined. Intubation considered, but patient recovered. Resident refused to participate in root cause analysis. How does the hospital system let a resident refuse to participate? Well, that beats me. I can't imagine. <laughs> That's, you know, in an earlier uh, interview with you, I talked about just culture, and, and a just culture would say that there are times when uh, accountability and proper behavior really do make a difference, and you just can't excuse it. So that's what I call a violation. It's just totally unacceptable. The rest of the story you told has to do with putting in proper procedures for medication reconciliation, for checking doses, a sophisticated computer order entry system, or even a fairly unsophisticated one would pick up an inappropriate dose and send out an alert automatically and so forth. So there are multiple things you can do in the system of care to deal with the problem you described, but it's an absolute violation and should not be tolerated that somebody would refuse to discuss it. I can't imagine such a thing being allowed. Now, from an IHI perspective, how would you start to put in, and what steps would you take to put in a system that prevents this from happening? You know, what would the process be by which a system or a hospital begins this shared agenda on quality? Well, you know, I, we could talk about the specific incident you mentioned, or I could give you another example, which might be a simpler one to deal with. Yeah, let's do yours. Uh, other major causes of harm, actually the second most common, are hospital-acquired infections, including central line infections, surgical site infections, and ventilator pneumonias. So there's a, a group of evidence-based procedures, what we would call a bundle of procedures, that we know reduce the risk of central venous line infections. And if you can set up systems so that these are done reliably, you will definitely reduce the rate of, of that particular harm. And we've seen many hospitals now go for months, if not years, without a central line infection that had much higher rates before. One example is that you use maximal barrier precautions to put in a line. That's one component of the bundle. And if you have a cart available with the drape and everything else you need, or if the kit itself comes with everything else you need, it's much more likely to be done than if all the supplies are scattered around the ward and you have to hunt for them. And if you supplement that with a checklist uh, that has to be uh, just checked off, I did all these things, you suddenly get very highly reliable care where before there was chaos. So that's a systems-oriented approach such as what I'm uh, uh, referring to. All too often, the hospitals have assumed that if they just go out and spend $15 million on a computerized physician order entry system or they put a clinical pharmacist on the ward, That'll solve the problem, but it'll only solve the problem if it's embedded in a system which is designed to work and can provide for highly reliable care. You're speaking about checklists, the procedures for decreasing central line infections. How do we make the physician champion that? Because if they don't get involved, it seems like the procedure and the process won't go forward. Right. This is actually a very good observation, and it turns out that despite all the work of the infection control community in doing the studies that showed the evidence in sending nurses to the wards and proselytizing like mad for these concepts, nothing was happening in most institutions. And it was when the intensivists began to see that they needed to make progress here that everything changed. So having a physician champion is absolutely key, and I think that the secret there was the availability of data 
uh, on the level of performance in individual institutions and nationally, but even more, the, the, the generation of a will that you actually could improve if you just tried to do this in a more reliable way. And there were a few institutions that had great success uh, by uh, just uh, doing rapid testing to see how to best to get this done. And when those stories began to get out, other people said, well, you know, if they can do it, I can do it. The next thing you knew, insurers were making it uh, a uh, paper performance initiative. I know at my hospital, the Blue Cross Blue Shield came in and said, well, let's talk about your rate of, of central line infection. Here's the evidence. Let, let's uh, let's uh, reward you for uh, getting breakthrough levels of performance. Everybody saves in that circumstance. Now, I understand Medicare will no longer pay for hospital-acquired infections. Is it going to take economics to drive quality agendas? Well, I, I think it's always a help. Uh, you, you don't want to have a system in which people are rewarded for giving bad care. So for many years, if you had an infection, you got paid more. You could up your complication rate, uh, your complexity rate. You could have a longer length of stay and get paid. Increasingly, the incentives for just keeping patients around in the hospital and uh, the ability to upcode have been uh, tightened. So that's not as much of a problem. But I think it's a powerful statement to say that if you have a central venous line infection in a ICU, you're not going to get paid for that. I think that's a powerful message, and it's uh, synergistic with what some of the legislatures are doing on public reporting of these rates. The devil's always in the details. You don't want to ask people to meet standards for which we don't have evidence in practice. You don't want to make uh, comparisons between hospitals and populations that aren't legitimate. So uh, there's a lot of oversimplification that occurs, but I think we're getting now to a common standard around some of these harms where we can actually begin to put in some financial incentives and disincentives and make some legislative mandates. Although I'm strongly committed to evidence-based medicine, I still have some cynicism because the evidence typically changes from time to time. For years, we thought you needed oxygen for CPR. Well, it turns out you don't. Or you needed to breathe for the patient while you did chest compressions. And it turns out you don't. A lot of evidence-based medicine is just consensus rather than the gold standard double-blind placebo-controlled study. Don't we have to have at least a little bit of a critical eye before we hop on something new as evidence? Oh, that's absolutely important. And it's not just a question of consensus versus randomized controlled trials. It's now becoming increasingly clear that as technology and med pharmaceuticals advance very rapidly, it's almost impossible for the randomized trials to keep up. So already we're starting to see the use of large observational data sets, insurance data sets, CMS, uh, public data sets for Medicare, being used to try and evaluate the evidence. That said, at IHI, we very much try to take all of that evidence and boil it down to things that are relatively well-accepted and non-controversial. And then we try and demonstrate in our own work with hospitals that the application of this evidence in a reliable way will lead to improvement. Uh, sometimes what appears to be evidence-based cannot be uh, shown to be effective in broader practice in real healthcare settings. And you have to be very critical about that. But, but I, I don't think we can afford to sit back and wait for perfect evidence. That, you know, if, if, for example, five randomized control trials or six observational trials have shown uh, that a certain drug improves outcomes in myocardial infarction. Yeah, something better may come along tomorrow, but right now everybody ought to be at least establishing reliable procedures to get the drug into eligible patients. All of these review mechanisms that look to see are people practicing according to the evidence allow for an opt-out. 
So if I have a patient who is very special and I don't think applies to the randomized controlled trials or is somehow unique, just put it in the record and then do something different. But don't just do it because you, it's your opinion that uh, the evidence isn't good. It just, you know, you have to be able to document why you're deviating from what ought to be near standard care now. I think that's the take-home message. Document, document, document. You need to justify why you're differentiating yourself from the standard. I want to thank Dr. Donald Goldman, who has given so generously of his time to be our guest, and we have been discussing developing a shared quality agenda. I am Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. I leave you with the words of Henry Ford. Quality means doing it right when no one is looking. I wish you good day and good health.